Acts chapter 10 is an incredible text. It's an incredible text in the Word of God because it's so full of spiritual truth and intriguing revelation. You could easily, honestly, do an entire series just on Cornelius and the vision that Peter had concerning the food and so forth. It's an amazing series of events that actually leads to one of the most earth-shaking revelations ever. What revelation? Well, it's down in verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. You know, it's amazing to me that a Jewish fisherman speaks one sentence in the first century, and literally the truth behind it, uh, because of it, nothing in the world would ever again be the same. And the reason is that what happens in Cornelius' household that day is what always happens in any great move of God. In some ways, what you see in this powerful scene is a perfect illustration of what ought to happen in every single church service. And every time God's people assemble together or people assemble together, this is what ought to happen. There are three things I want us to consider in that regard, okay? Because again, you're coming to church tonight. These are the things that ought to happen in every assembly of God's people. What happened in his household? What are they? The first one I want you to notice is submission. Look at verse 33, would you? It says, Immediately, therefore, I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Now, folks, I hope you take note and consider how rich and how full, amazing this statement made by Cornelius truly is. For example, you see the word all there in verse 33. He says what? We are all here. Who's the all? Well, go back to verse 24. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and had called together his kinsmen, that means all of his family members, and his near friends, that means his besties. And you know his besties are, they would be soldiers, politicians. So look at it again. He called his kinsmen and his near friends. In other words, all of the family members, all of his closest friends have assembled themselves together in his house. And the Bible says that they're waiting. I don't know how long they had to wait, but they waited and they waited. And that's not all. Notice again, verse 33, the last line says, Before God to what? To hear all things that are commanded thee, Peter, of God. Now you see why, you see what we mean, I think, that this, play, this scripture is so full and so rich. This is the kind of gathering, the kind of assembly that we as a church ought always to be. We're waiting in the presence of God together. So that Cornelius, you know, he didn't call this assembly all friends and all of his uh, family members just to discuss some gossip or to exchange recipes or to contest the budget. He didn't call all these people together to, you know, seek status or compare clothes and so on. That didn't matter. This wasn't a political rally. This was not some union meeting. This was not a fundraiser. This was an assembly, and these people came together, and the Bible says that they were waiting in the presence of God in order to what? To feel good? To walk away saying, boy, I feel better after I went there. 
to see a vision? To dance or be entertained? Did they assemble to affirm one another? Verse 33 again, look at it. Immediately therefore I send to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore we are all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. In other words, follow this, present before God, everyone is assembled, they're all waiting so that all of them there could do one thing, hear the word of God. And you know, if you're wondering tonight why verse 44 says that the Holy Spirit of God fell on them, please understand that the Holy Spirit of God typically falls. The Holy Spirit of God typically comes when people assemble to wait upon and hear the words of God. Now, people who come to play with their iPhones, they come to make paper airplanes out of the offering envelopes. I'm looking at you, I'm just kidding. Maybe not so much. People who come to assemble to hear about some man, oh, we got to hear that guy. Embrace that man's wisdom. That's not his spirit. That's not life-changing. In fact, look at verse 25, would you? And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Wow. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up. I myself also am a man. See, pastor, is that important for this Gentile Roman soldier to be told, I'm just a man, don't fall down and worship me? Of course it is. And by the time that we get to verse 33, you will notice that Cornelius does not say, we're all here with eager anticipation to hear what the amazing Peter has to say. He already thought he was amazing because of his vision. But at this point now, he knows it's not, this man's awesome. I can't wait to hear him. We are here, he said, to listen to God's word. You know, one of the things that I often enjoy is reading old books, really old books that give you, give you an historical account from that exact time period. It's one thing to read, say, for example, a 21st century historian who's writing about the 17th century. That's one thing. That's an opinion almost. But it's another thing to read what was written in the 17th century by someone who's living there and observing it from his own heart. And a while ago, I came across a book written by a man who pastored in London named John McNeil. A.T. Pearson wrote the foreword to this book, and since Moody called that man the greatest preacher in the world in 1890, the one who wrote this book, I figured it must be pretty good. Plus the fact that this man was from Scotland. That always helps. In 1893, John McNeil preached a series of sermons at the World's Fair in Chicago, Illinois. And in the first message that he preached there, and it was written down, transcribed, that I read, he said something about modern churches. Now remember, this is in the 1700s. He said something about modern churches back then, churches in America and in England. And what he said sounded very, very familiar. Let me just read a line or two, may I? You know that today there is a tendency to revise the Directory for Public Worship. Those words are all capitalized, so it must have been some sort of a standard book. To revise the Directory of Public Worship to say the hearing of God's Word has been too much magnified, we shall change that. 
we've made a mistake. What I come to God's house for, says one, is to worship or to join in prayer and praise. But what is central? And what must always be central in a gathering of saints or sinners in evangelistic missions or regular services like our own, what must always be central is the preaching of God's word and the attending thereto by the hearer. That is worship at its highest. All the powers of the soul get their highest use and their fullest freedom when God's word is faithfully and lovingly proclaimed. In other words, he says, even 130 years ago, there were people, he says, the modern churches of that era, they came to church, but they wanted something more than just the Bible. And John McNeil goes on to warn that if churches in England and in America grow cold and dead, it will be because instead of the Bible, ministries continue to turn, quote, entertainment and gimmicks into ministry. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but this man, Cornelius, already had an amazing vision. God had already given given him that in his dream. He was already noted for some pretty impressive good works, for that matter. Go back to verse 2 at the beginning of the chapter. It says that he was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. Now, I don't know about you folks, that's impressive. I should say, that is impressive to us. And you know what? A lot of preachers today who would hear this kind of a testimony or this resume, and they would say, wow, Cornelius, you should write a book. You should preach next Sunday. You should be our worship leader. Fasting, visions, giving, alms, prayers. What a story. And Cornelius, you can take this thing on the road. If you give that story and wear your centurion's uniform with that red cape, imagine what a hit you'll be. And a lot of folks today would say by verse 3 that based upon what we just read, Cornelius was a saved man. That Cornelius was a born-again child of God. A lot of folks accept, of course, God and accept Cornelius himself. Verse 22, you'll notice, says that God warned Cornelius. He was warned by God. It's a reminder to us that no amount of alms or prayers or visions or fasting can ever replace the truths of the Word of God. And you know, beloved, this is a whole other sermon. We've preached it before. Cornelius needed still the truth, the whole truth. So that really the best thing about him is what it says in verse 33. I am here, present before God, to hear all things concerning and commanded by God. Now, folks, just think for a minute about how remarkable this is. In light, note this, in light of how powerful and prestigious Cornelius was. For sure, at this time and in this culture that we're reading in the book of Acts, that man Cornelius was far more impressive than Peter the fisherman far more impressive to everyone who would be around either man. You see, Cornelius, as we read earlier with Brother Kevin, was a centurion. That means he's the commander of a 60th part of a Roman legion. That means at least 100 men under his command. Furthermore, we find in the Bible that he is stationed at Caesarea. That's a port named after Caesar, and it was the seat of the Roman government in Syria. The Italian ban 
was a company of crack troops in Rome's army. And yes, normally a man of this stature, normally a man with this kind of rank was ambitious and brutal. His was an official post. It was an official post in a day of unspeakable corruption and licentiousness. His business was war. Matter of fact, his business at that time was war and occupation of Israel. His religion was idolatry and paganism, and his training was entirely without mercy. So that you would think that this man would have no chance of ever embracing the truth or finding peace in his heart with God. But we're told something else. Go back to verse 2, would you? Chapter 1. He was a devout man and one that feared God with all of his house which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. I mean, this man is an unusual soldier in any day, much less that day. Cornelius, this man, was nothing less than heroic. We find out, if you keep reading, he was charitable, beloved, sincere, prayerful, devout, so that this officer of Rome had an impeccable reputation. Go down to verse 22. They said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man. That's other people's opinions. And one that feareth God and of good report among all the nation of the Jews. How unusual would that be? Verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. How many Roman officers in the first century do you suppose both prayed and fasted for four days and apparently not to his nation's idols? In other words, Cornelius was a good and a noble man. And instead of being prideful and a know-it-all, we find that he was humble and submissive. He didn't say, I'm not going to listen to that uneducated redneck from Indian Town or Capernaum, I'm not going to listen to this man who's way below me. Come and tell me anything about God. He was submissive. He was humble. And every time you walk in those doors or the doors of any church to sit down and hear the preaching, it's always a little troublesome when someone says, you know, I don't want to hear that missionary because, and you can fill in the blank. God can use anybody anywhere, at any time. And it may be that God is using the humblest person, a fisherman like Peter, to come and give you the truth of God. He was submissive. The second thing I want you to notice, number one, first thing is the submission. Number two is the speech or the sermon. Verse 34, look at it. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, let me stop here for a moment. I'm going to ask you a question. All of these people have crowded into this very powerful man's house. And they're waiting. They are anticipating what Peter's about to say, and specifically about the commandment of God for them. What is it that God told Cornelius that this man has to say to them? So here's the question. When Peter opens his mouth and when he gives his sermon and his speech, what do you suppose he's going to say? What words are going to come out that are literally going to change the world? Do you suppose that he'll tell Cornelius how awesome he is? Try to find common ground? Do you suppose that he'll be 
a unifier and not a divider? Do you suppose you'll tell Cornelius that, you know, today is the first day of the rest of your life and everything happens for a reason? Or live, laugh, love, Cornelius. Or Cornelius, sometimes you have to look through the rainbow or look through the rain to see the rainbow and shoot for the moon, Cornelius. And if you shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Hey, Cornelius, it's not the number of breaths we take. It's the number of moments that take our breath away. <laughs> you want me to go on or are you all getting sick to your stomach yet? <laughs> Be yourself, accept yourself as God accepts you and so on. No, I'm pretty sure if he started in with all of those platitudes, Cornelius would have taken his sword out and make Rome great again. It would have been the end of Peter. And you know, while it's true that Cornelius was attentive and humble and submissive, and you get the picture here that they're waiting. They're waiting for the word of God from just a common fisherman. While it's true that they're waiting and submissive and humble and attentive, it is also true that Peter spoke, he gave a message, and what made this moment in history, history changing, and, and honestly and obviously life-altering and eternal, is that truth came out of his mouth. Not platitudes, not positive thinking, not success strategies, not how to help your business be better, but the word of the living God. You say, well, pastor, what truth? Let's just look at a few things that came out of his mouth. Look at verse 36. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Whoa, let's stop here for a minute. All those guests, those besties, and his family members, they all worship idols. They're Romans. And there's some Jews there. And so what do the Jews and the Romans hear? Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That's not a unifier. Verse 37, the word I say you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached how God, verse 38, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Who's they? Well, the Jews and the Romans. Him, verse 40, Jesus God raised up the third day. And showed him openly. Verse 42. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. To, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And God's people said, Amen. In other words, look, he preached the gospel. He preached the word of the living God. Jesus is God in verse 36. Jesus died in verse 39. He rose in verse 40. And he saves those who believe, and only those who believe on him, in verse 43. And yes, in spite of all of Cornelius' prayers and alms and fasting, he still needed to hear that. His friends and his family still needed to hear that. And I say, God bless God bless the Apostle Peter for telling a crowd of Gentiles in first century Rome 
an empire, again, that was full of idolatry, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Lord of Lord, King of Kings. And thank God for preaching the resurrection when it was new and recent and fresh and made fun of by most of the people and not some Easter tradition. And thank God for His preaching the remission of sins in His and His name alone. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This week I reread the salvation testimony of Alexander Chu, who's an assistant pastor in a church very near my, my old bus route in Chicago. And I want to read some of it to you, could I? These are his words. Click, click, click. I could hear my parents in the other room using a handheld tally counter as they recited their mantras. And one day in our home, the counter might reach a thousand clicks or two hours of meditation. They chanted in order to clear their minds and purify themselves, seeking perfect enlightenment in the way of the Buddha. Each morning I would wake up to the smell of incense burning, oranges and pineapple cake were offered in front of Buddha statues in a room designated for meditation. Our home was like a temple. On each wall hung a Buddha portrait, totaling more than 30 deities throughout the house. A statue of the Grand Master, revered as a living Buddha, stood at the center of our home. My parents spoke often about discipline, wisdom, and training the mind according to the four noble truths. My father was a science professor, my mother a homemaker raising two sisters and me. The influence of a Guggenheim award-winning dad and a so-called tiger mom kept the pressure on for straight A's. Academics, achievement, and ambition were non-negotiable in my search for parental approval. My Taiwanese family lineage included generations of Buddhists so that religion was destined to be integral to my identity. In the mid-1990s, I arrived at the University of Illinois in Urbane. My dorm was full of fervent Christians. They were the first Asian-American Christians I had ever met. Living with them, I began to realize that the Buddhism of my upbringing was not in my heart. Growing curious about Christianity during my sophomore year, I began studying my first Bible that was given to me and a Gospel of John that was given to me. The authority which, which Jesus spoke amazed me. It's as if his words jumped off the pages, addressing me directly. In October 1997, during my junior year, I grew convinced of my sin, my need to be forgiven. I drove to an open forest that night. I knelt down on my knees and I accepted Christ as Savior. I'd grown up in a sea of deities, yet never had a relationship with any of them. On that day, I experienced the living God, Emmanuel, God with us. A peace overtook me as I gazed at the sky, and that night I became the first Christian in our family's lineage. He goes on in his testimony to tell how he leads his father, his mother, his sisters, his entire family to Christ in the years that followed. But you know what strikes me the most about that testimony? The simple power of God's Word. He read the Scriptures. He received a witness from others of the scriptures. What strikes me about his testimony is the power of God's word and the uncompromising witness of his friends who did not allow for other gods or religions to save him. Peter preached the gospel. He preached the word of God. Which brings us to a third thing in the text. We see in here, this text, the submission. Come to church submissive. Submissive. 
not to me, not to the Sunday school teachers. Come to church submissive to the Spirit of God, to His Word, to whatever God has for you. Number two, we saw the speech or the sermon. Number three, we then see the stirring, the work of God. Look at verse 43, would you? To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth, re- believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. You know, I think it's, in fact, I know it's significant that it's when Peter preached, that it's when he preached on the faith and the remission of sins that the floodgates are opened and the Spirit of God falls. Nobody gets saved until they first acknowledge that they're sinners, that they're lost. I once read a story about Lord Nelson. He was the vice admiral in the British Navy, Horatio Nelson, as some of you know. And arguably, if you know, if you've read anything about him, a few biographies here and there, you know that he's probably the single greatest war hero in all of British history. Nobody even comes close in second place. He commanded a ship when he was 19 years of age. He lost one eye in battle, and then he lost his right arm in another battle. And then at 47, he lost his life in his final battle. His leadership, his brilliant grasp of strategy was, they said, unrivaled before or after. He had a very famous line, England expects that every man will do his duty. And that has become and remains one of the most quoted naval lines in maritime history in all navies across the world. But another famous line that was often quoted almost exclusively by preachers and missionaries in the 18th century It was something that he said to a French captain when that man was surrendering because Nelson had defeated him during the Napoleonic Wars. After the battle and Nelson's victory, the French captain boarded the British ship. He looked at the captain across from him and then he offered his hand. And Lord Nelson famously said, your sword first, if you please. You see, the sword, his sword, represented his power, his position, his authority, and his hope. And what Nelson was reminding him and why it was quoted so often by missionaries in that time and preachers was that this was a surrender after all. I don't want your hand while you still have your sword. And beloved, that's the way it is really with salvation and the gospel. Nobody gets to take God's hand while still holding to another God of pride or works or position. You give up your own sword first, your religion, whatever it is. Surrender completely to the gospel of Christ, the truth of his shed blood alone, and then you take God by the hand. Peter told Cornelius that the Lord of all was crucified on a cross, raised on the third day, is the judge of all men, including him, And he could give remission of sins to any sinners that would believe on his name alone. Look at verse 47. 
Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days, no doubt. And the rest, as they say, is history. And I just want to say it as a reminder to us tonight, beloved, at least to me, that every church should make history. Not the headlines. I don't care about making headlines. Making headlines is not important. That's what a lot of churches are trying to do. But every church should make history. And the way you make history is by changing people's lives. And the only thing that really changes people's lives is the gospel, salvation, and the word of the living God. You know, it's funny. I, when I was young, a boy, I remember Muhammad Ali defeated Sonny Liston down here in Miami. And after he defeated him, he said, we shook the world. We shook the world. And that, now every athlete since then, or every team, I heard uh, just this week, Deion Sanders, you know, they're doing amazing things over there in Colorado. And after that first victory, when they defeated, uh, was it Texas Christian? They defeated him. We shook the world. We shook up the world. Every athlete comes down the road, every team, that's what they say. We shook the world. Did they? Now, if the Indianapolis Colts win the Super Bowl, that's shaking the world, heaven, Hades, it shakes everything. But every time I hear that, I think, really? Does Dion think that a billion people in India, China, care about the Colorado Buffaloes? Shook which world? What happened to Cornelius and his family when they got saved shook the world. It shook them. It shook their families. I was thinking about a certain family in our church this week and thanking God for them. And I was thanking God for, and I don't think I'll give any of this away, I was thanking God for the, the faithfulness of the mom and dad who are in this room in teaching their children to be faithful to church and not just sit in church, but to sit in church and listen. And now their children are winning people to Christ, serving God, all of them, faithful. That's how you shake the world. That's how you change the world. By making sure that people get saved, have the remission of sins, surrender to Christ, and live their lives for Him. And then they give the gospel to others. When you come to church next time, think about Cornelius' household. This is an assembly. We're not crammed in a little Roman centurion's home, but this is an assembly of God's people. Think about this household. Think about sitting down and being submissive to the Holy Spirit of God for whatever he has for you. To say, I'm here to listen to what God's command is for me and my life. And then walk out those doors and say, you know what? We can shake the world. We can change the world with the word of God. And God's people said... Let's bow our heads, shall we, for just a moment. Changing lives and saving souls, that is history-making stuff. Because you know what? It goes on for generations. Think about people in this room right now. You're saved because your parents were saved and your grandparents were saved or someone led you to the Lord, and your children now are following and they're being saved, and it changes generations. This is what the Word of God does. I wonder who'd say tonight, Pastor, I'm a believer, I'm a child of God, but as a Christian, I needed some of these reminders. There's something that was said tonight the Holy Spirit spoke to me about, and I needed it tonight. 
Who would say that with heads bowed as a testimony to the Lord? Not to me, but just to the Lord between you and he. And amen. God bless you. Listening by live stream or sitting in these pews right now is somebody who's not saved. I mean, Cornelius, what would Peter say to Cornelius? Good job. You're going to heaven. God gave you a vision and God gave me a vision because he wanted me to come down here and applaud what you're doing. No, he told him the whole story, the whole gospel. And you may be religious and you may give alms and you may be noble and you may be, have a good position and have a really good reputation. But God's son died for your sins. He was buried and resurrected for your justification and you must accept him as savior. And if you're here tonight and you say, that's me, I'm not sure about it. I'm not sure my name's in heaven, but I want to be sure. Could we pray for you? I won't come and embarrass you. I would just pray for you. Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved tonight, but I need to be sure. Would you pray for me? Who would say that? God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else? God bless you as well. Amen. Others? Join these two. God bless you, ladies. We're going to pray in a moment, have a time of invitation. As always here, Brother Kevin will lead us in an invitation song. And if the Lord has spoken to your heart about anything, especially if you need to be saved, but maybe it's just, you know, recognize sometimes we just have to go back to the Bible and find out what really matters in eternity, what matters in God's kingdom, and not get caught up in what, quote, unquote, shook the world that really shakes nothing. Father, I pray you'll bless now the invitation. We commit it into your hands. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for a man who stood up and unashamedly preached the gospel, the whole gospel. We thank you for fruit that remains, and we thank you for fruit in this room that remains. And I pray, Father, that as an assembly of believers, we will come together, we will gather together every time we come, submissive to your will and to your spirit, so that may the Holy Spirit fall on all of us, bless all of us, and strengthen us for the journey that you've given us. We'll give you the praise for all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.